Let's pray together. <clears throat> our gracious, uh, gracious God in heaven, uh, that's our desire that our, our hearts are after you, Lord. Uh, God, as we, uh, as we open up your word this, uh, this morning, again, we ask you to open up our hearts. Um, God, we ask you to form us. We ask you to change us. We ask you to transform us, not just the world that we live in, but your people inside of it. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to say uh, one more time, um, welcome and uh, good morning, especially if you're a guest uh, worshiping with us. Hey, glad that, uh, glad you're here. Um, before we dig into the passage uh, for this morning to see what God has in store for us, I just want to give a plug for what's coming up next. Um, this morning, we're going to wrap up the series, Red Letter Prayers, the prayers of Jesus. And uh, next week, we're going to start a new series called Behind the Veil. And I'm really excited about that. Uh, Behind the Veil, um, uh, Stories of Jesus. Jesus and, and women. Uh, only we're going to take a look at some of the, the stories of women in the Bible, not where they're maybe heroic or famous. There's plenty to choose from there, but, but this series is unique because it's stories of women in the Bible that we maybe haven't heard of before. Or, or stories in the Bible where women are marginalized sidelines. And this series is one upcoming that we take a, a look, peeking behind the veil of stereotypes, of cultural assumptions, and we take a look at the difference that Jesus makes in their lives. And hopefully, too, we can take a, a look behind the veil of, uh, of our lives today and take a look at the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. Uh, the, the, behind the veil of, of the assumption, cultural assumptions and, uh, and stereotypes uh, going on today. So next week, Behind the Veil, uh, see you then. Uh, but this morning, we, so we wrap up this series of uh, Red Letter Prayers. And, and in order to maybe wrap it up well, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, uh, how we started this series. Uh, before we get to the Red Letter Prayer this morning, we have to go all the way back to when Jesus was teaching us how to pray. And he said, hey, when you start off and you're praying, start off with our Father, start off praying by not starting off asking. Remember, it's not so much about what I want, but about his will, right? If we could take that Lord's Prayer and boil it down, distill it down, refine it down into one small saying, we could say it would say something like this. When you pray, declare God's glory. Maybe even surrender your will. But, but save the asking for later, we go all the way back to that point because I just want to ask, because it's relevant for this morning, how did it go? <laughs> I mean, as you look back at some of the, uh, the prayers that you've offered over this series, maybe the last four weeks, maybe longer, how many prayers were you successful in starting off not asking for something? <laughs> I mean, I don't want any show of hands, so please don't, do not feel obligated to put your, put your hands up. But if I were to say, how many prayers did you pray in the last four weeks where you started off not asking? Was it 100%? <laughs> you know, no show of hands. 50%? 10%? I'm going to guess when we, uh, when we say this, don't start off asking kind of prayer and ask how successful were we. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I'm guessing for a lot of us, it's not very successful. Because I'm looking at some of the prayers that I've offered over the last four weeks or even over the long run and say, I'm not sure I was entirely that successful all the time. Hopefully it made a difference. But batting a thousand? Probably not. I'm thinking of some of the prayers that I've offered that when I get in my car and I'm starting to go somewhere, 
I, maybe it's a time thing. Maybe I just don't have the time to, to maybe declare God's glory, surrender my will. Just, and it just like gets right down to the point. These kind of specific, laser-focused, I'll call them outcome-based prayers. God, this is what I need. 15 minutes late already. No traffic and a parking spot next to the building. That's all I'm asking for. It's simple, right? God, I'm, I'm, trying, for, you know, I'm trying to do uh, your will here, your work here, so I need you to help, help me help you. These are the things that I need to get there. How successful are we? As we offer up these specific, laser-focused, outcome, outcome-based prayers. Now, so uh, I would consider myself uh, somewhat of an expert in this area. I know I'm not proud, I'm not supposed to be proud of that, but, you know, just maybe to identify here. Uh, expert in this area, because about a year ago uh, now, Encounter, just, just over a year ago, Encounter was meeting in a, in a, a public school cafetorium, which is more cafeteria than auditorium. We didn't tell that to people until now. Um, and, so, yeah, we know. Thanks, Chad. Uh, and so I get to be kind of an expert in these outcome-based prayers because I'd go in the morning to, uh, to, to pick up the trailer, to bring it over to the, uh, the cafeteria, and first maybe have to, have to dig it out from the massive amount of snow that fell on it first. So I'm running a little bit late already, and then by the time I, I get to the, uh, or on the way to the cafeteria, I would, I would have this specific laser-focused outcome-based prayer to God that would say something along the lines of, God, please allow the locks to just open and not let them be frozen shut because I forgot the blowtorch back at home and I don't have enough time to go back home, get the torch, bring it back. Everything's going to be late. We got the whole church inside of this trailer. Specific outcome-based prayer. (laughs) This is what I need. (laughs) Or, God, please, when I walk into the room, let the air conditioning be on and working. Some of you remember that. Because you know what, God, I, I just want to tell people about Jesus, and, and I found that they're more receptive to Jesus when it's not a thousand degrees in the room and everybody is sweating. Help me help you <laughs> by fulfilling the specific outcome-based prayer. And what happens when Jesus says no? And God just says, I, I don't think so, not this time. What does it mean when, when we pray for one thing and one thing only and the answer that we get is a clear and resounding no? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how to pray and how to pray in a way that we know that God hears us and we know that God listens. And we said it's on Jesus' credibility, not ours. That's why we pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. I prayed. I prayed for air conditioning. I prayed for the locks to open. I prayed for a good parking space. In Jesus' name, I know he heard me. The answer that he just gave is no. But after all, we're just talking about locks and air conditioning. We're not always talking about locks and air conditioning. Some of you have been praying the same specific, laser-focused, outcome-based prayer for years now. God, I, I need this relationship to improve because the trajectory of this thing I can't handle it. I can't go down that road. So God, I want, I want this marriage. I want this friendship. I want this, this roommate situation, whatever it is. I want it to honor you. I know you want it to honor you. So, so help me help you by fulfilling this one request in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I know he heard me. It's just that for years now, the resounding answer that I got was a clear no. What happens when we ask for an outcome and God just simply says no? Well, we have some company. It's not just me. It's that it's interesting the way we kind of bookend this series, right? Where we start off with Jesus saying, hey, when you pray, don't start off making it all about you. And one of the last prayers that Jesus offers up is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's by himself and he's praying. And guess what? The entire prayer is about himself. Jesus' entire prayer is this laser-focused, specific, outcome-based prayer. And I don't, I don't mean to spoil the ending if you haven't read it already, but God is going to hear him and he's going to say no. What do we do then when God says no? What does Jesus do? It's a look in the story, Mark chapter 14. It's on the uh, flow sheet and also on the screen behind me. Uh, Mark 14, verse 32, and we'll just read it through uh, entirely and make a few comments on it. Uh, they went, uh, that's uh, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took uh, Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here, keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter. Simon, he said to Peter. Finds him sleeping, and Peter the rock, I'm going to build this church. He can't even call him Peter anymore. He says, Simon, his other name, are you sleeping? Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Pray and watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Kind of an odd choice of words there, but we'll hang in there. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to him, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of of sinners. Rise. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. There's only a few places in the Bible that I can think of where Jesus is is demonstrating so clearly his humanity. What it means to to be fully, I would say, one of us. Fully human. I mean, so often, maybe if you're familiar with a few of the stories of Jesus, so often, Jesus is, is this 
like 100% super chill kind of guy where he's just calm all the time. I mean, he's out on this little skiff, right, with his disciples. And the way that the story is recorded, it's, it's almost like there's a hurricane like descending right on this little boat of Jesus and his disciples. And he's, Jesus is sleeping in the boat. How is that, how is that possible, man? And then the disciples run over and they don't know how it's possible either. And they say, Jesus, you've got to get up. I mean, there's a wind and the waves and we're going to die out here. And he just very calmly like stands up and he says, wind died down and the waves died down and everything's fine. He goes, I don't know, I don't know what you guys are worried about. <laughs> He's just this super calm, cool as the other side of the pillow kind of guy. He says something, it gets everybody all riled up, all angry at him and they want to kill him. They want to just, they're, breathing murderous threats about him. And it just says, and then he got up and he walked through the crowd and went on his way. How is that possible? How can somebody maintain this kind of like zen-like attitude towards life all the time? There's a few passages in the Bible where that breaks apart. Or Jesus, is, his relatability, I think, comes out. His humanity comes out. This passage is one of those. Jesus is in profound agony over what's coming. I don't know necessarily like what it means, the, the practical benefits about what it means to, to be divine for Jesus. You know, not having been there, I, I don't entirely know like some of what it meant for Jesus to be God and also human. But one thing we do know is that he seems to know what's coming next. He seems to be, be having an eye towards the future. He, he, he seems to get that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die in the very near future. And it, it has him broken up. And I, I want to take a step back with us this morning and I want some perspective on the matter. If Jesus knows what's coming, he probably knows what's coming after that. I mean, if, if he knows what he's, if he knows the, the suffering and the death that's coming his way, I'm, I'm wondering if he, if he doesn't also know the suffering and the deaths that, that's coming toward the disciples' way. Like, Jesus, I get that you are going to suffer, I get that you're going to die. But do you have any idea that almost all of the disciples are going to suffer and going to die themselves because they believe in you, because they identify with you? Jesus, if you know what's happening, you know what's happening next. Jesus, millions upon millions of people are going to suffer and they're going to die because they will not recant your name. So Jesus, I get that you're in the garden and I get that you don't want to die. I can appreciate that. I would be there also. But Jesus, do you have any idea what kind of movement, what kind of revolution is turning on these last few moments of your life? Jesus, I really need you to put your game face on and braveheart this situation, okay? Inspire your troops. But I don't think that he's just scared of dying. In fact, there's a few words that he uses, some language that kind of we can tease out in the passage that, that makes us just a bit aware that something is going on on a deeper level. And Jesus, he gets that. It's not just about dying. 
we get that it's not just about dying because there's a few words that he uses. First of all, in verse 36, and also in, in that song sung for us during the uh, offering time, take this cup from me. And he also says at the very ending in verse 41, second line uh, from the bottom on the flow sheet, enough, the hour has come. It's kind of odd language that's used, even in Jesus' day. They didn't use the metaphor of uh, taking a cup from me very often. They didn't say things like, the hour is near or the hour has come. In fact, they, they did use that language in a few specific places. It, what's going on here is that Jesus is, is borrowing language from a specific genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. He's looking back at places in the Bible. You know, we know them in the Old Testament as like the book of Daniel, but not the first half, the second half where things get weird. The second half where there's like angels and eyes and spinning wheels And there's this language that starts to come out when you're writing in that genre. And they say things like, the hour is near or the hour has come. And what they mean when they speak that way, when they write that way, is that God's final judgment is approaching. It kind of times up, so to speak, is what the hour is near. And there's tons of writings outside of the Bible as well that kind of use that language. And also, uh, after this was written, the, the book of Revelation is the same kind of literature talking about this, this end of t- time, time's up, uh, hour is near kind of language. Jesus starts to borrow some of this to, to describe in his personal prayer life between he and the Father. It's like pointing towards, it's not just about suffering. It's not just about getting whipped. It's not just about nails. It's not about a cross. It's about this judgment that's about to be poured out. It's about this this apocalyptic, it's about this, it's it's about this cataclysmic kind of event with cosmic proportions and impact. It's so big. That's what this is about. And as he's praying, he's so worked up about it that the Luke, another uh, gospel writer, tells us that he started sweating like blood, perspiring, right? Beads kind of running down his face. Um, medical language on that is called hematidrosis. It's when somebody is, is so anxiety-ridden, so agony-stricken that the capillaries in their blood, the tiny blood vessels, uh, pop. And, and then it gets in the, the pores and the sweat. And so it's kind of like this blood-watery-like mix. I just imagine running down Jesus' face, stained red. He's thinking about what's coming next, about, about the hour and, and the cup And it terrifies him because of what it means. A few of you were around, I know, for uh, our Good Friday service uh, here at Encounter last spring where we walked through, kind of journeyed through this um, Passover meal uh, together as a church. Uh, Part of that Passover meal has implications here when he says that that cup being taken from me. Uh, When Jesus... uh, 
this same day, earlier in the evening, about a few hours earlier, Jesus also celebrated the Passover meal or the, the Seder meal, as it was called. Now, this was a meal that was done almost the same way throughout all of uh, history up until the uh, Jewish people, the Israelites, were, were taken out of Egypt, out of the land of, of slavery. And it was done almost in the, in the same way for these thousands of years, even in Jesus' time, uh, so that they could, the people could, could remember specifically and exactly what God saved them from. And there's just a huge amount of uh, literature and, and writings about this kind of event. So, so, so we know a lot about it, which makes it more peculiar that when Jesus celebrates this Passover meal with his disciples, there's a few kind of key elements that are referenced but also missing. You know, when they, people would sit down for the Seder meal on the, uh, on this, this celebrating this Passover, like Jesus did with his disciples, like a good a Jewish person and especially a rabbi, There'd be a number of different items present that would also have just huge amounts of, of significance. Like a few of those were an, were an egg. It's, that's a, a food that somebody would eat after the first thing after a loved one passes away. Um, just a lot of uh, more on that, but we won't get into it. Along with uh, an egg dipped in salt water. Salt water to sort of remember and go through this sensory experience of the tears of Israel when they were slaves. Uh, and also there was a, a bitter herbs to reflect the bitter experience. The Koraseth, which is um, th- this kind of brown dipping sauce, w- which was meant to remind the people of the of the bricks that they had to make and the out of uh, mud and, and clay, everything pointed towards God's saving act. And as part of the meal, they would they'll go through these stages, uh, intermixed with with singing, intermixed with prayers, with scripture reading. And different items, food passing around. Part of those were, were four cups of wine that would pass around the table. How they did it was they'd fill up a cup of wine. It, the host would drink some and they'd pass it to the next person. And the, and the last person that would, would get the cup would have to drink it all the way down. Now, this isn't like the fancy kind of wine that maybe comes like in the 750 milliliters at a time, like prepackaged and sterile. It's perfect. This is the kind of wine that maybe has some, some nastiness at the bottom, like the homebrew kind of stuff that maybe a friend lets you borrow one time. And, and there's like bitter, like dregs at the bottom, and it's, it's kind of gross. But if you were the last person in line, you'd have to drink that bitterness all the way down completely, leave nothing left. And then the, the liturgy, if you call it that, would move on. Uh, there was four circles of that. And by the fourth cup that was passed, they would read a psalm together. Actually, they would sing the psalm. It was called the Great Halal, a hymn. It's Psalm 136. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. And they'd sing a song, and they'd pass the fourth cup around. And a prayer would accompany that fourth cup. The prayer would be something along the lines or contain the words, God, may you pour out your wrath on the nations that despise you. And the last person would drink it down. And the meal would officially be over and they'd be on their way. When the gospel writers tell us about Jesus' Seder meal, his Passover meal, It says that they sang a hymn together, probably Psalm 136, his love endures forever. And then it says that he went out and prayed. And fourth cup was never passed around. At least it wasn't mentioned as being passed around. 
In fact, the next time that the cup was mentioned was only a little bit later in the chapter when Jesus is in the garden and he's sweating blood and he's looking at the hour, this, this kind of apocalyptic hour that, that's rapidly approaching and he cries out to his father and he says, take the cup from me. I know it's mine to drink, it's full, and I know my task is to drink it all the way down to the bitter end for all of the nations who cast sin at you, who despise you. This, this is what lies ahead. This is what makes him sweat blood. This is what makes his capillaries burst. This is what makes him so troubled, so distraught at what's coming. Uh, just a couple of, of notes on that. You know, when, when I was a kid, uh, and I don't know where I got this from, whether it was church or like home or, you know, Sunday school or youth group or something like that, but, but, but people used to tell me like, you know, you want to be a good person. You want to be a good Christian because someday you're going to have to uh, give an account for everything that you did before God. And like, I don't know where I got this from, but the visual image that I got of that is like me sitting next to God on a couch that was kind of uncomfortable. It's an odd detail, I know, but it was in there. And God would put in a movie of my life and together we'd watch that. Only we wouldn't like skip over the nasty parts. He would pause it on those. And he would, he would like, Dirk, I want you to tell me about that time, you know, like December 19th, 1990, like whatever it was. And I would like have to explain that to him. And, and I would just imagine Jesus, or, or I should say God here, uh, the Father, like getting more and more upset at that. Like as the video of my life sort of proceeded, God's righteous, his holy anger would start to like flare up at me. And this is what was introduced to me as like why I need Jesus, because I can't take that righteous anger. But now I'm looking at Jesus' shoes now and saying, wait a second, he's doing this with the Father, but it's not like just his video. It's mine and it's yours and it's, it's yours and it's yours and it's yours. He's watching like everybody's videos together and the father's like pausing it at these moments and saying like, are you sure you want this? You have seen exactly how undeserving she is. Are you sure that you want to suffer for her? Are you sure that you want to be abandoned for her or him? And Jesus would take it all. He would drink the cup down to its bitter end. On top of that, the abandonment that he would experience. I've got a neighbor who just put uh, their house up for sale I don't know him that well, but I feel like we could have been pretty good friends. Probably if they didn't know I was talking about them right now. <laughs> but they're going to be moving away soon, and, and honestly, it's not going to bug me that much because we never got to know each other. Some of you have people that you've been neighbors with for your whole life, and it's not like they're a neighbor. They're not even a friend. They're an extension of your family and you theirs. Like, that's how close you are. You couldn't imagine life without living next door. Some of you can imagine what it'd be like to to walk hand in hand with somebody celebrating a 30, 40, or 50 year wedding anniversary. 
And you think like the level of closeness that they must have. I can only, only imagine it. And then, and then when inevitably one of them passes on. One of them is called home. And nobody, nobody looks at the one left behind and says, I think it's about time that you got over that. Nobody looks at, at the widow or widower and says, all right, your time for mourning is done. No, you just know that you don't come back. You don't get over. The mourning just it doesn't end until they see each other again in heaven. What's it like for Jesus, who the, the most ancient creeds tell us, coexistent with the Father, preeminent before all of creation, begotten, not made, to suffer that kind of, of loss I mean, if we can see in just one lifetime how it kind of grows, even to the point of of not ever coming back from it. If we can see even just that small scale, what would it be like for Jesus on the infinite level? It might be enough to make him beg, to make him plead with the Father, find another way. And he does. It may be enough to make him offer this specific laser-focused kind of outcome-based prayer. Please, God, this one thing and this thing only. I know you're listening. I know you can hear me. And when he prays, he leverages everything that he can to get God to act in response to his request. He says a, a couple of phrases that I love that he uses. He goes, verse 36, Abba, Father, all the other gospel writers, they just say father, the Greek word pater. It's kind of got this like hint of, of formality to it. But, but Mark here was probably the first gospel, first one to, to write down the story. You know, it's still like fresh for him. And he goes, no, no, no. He didn't just say pater. That holds like the wrong kind of, of idea. I mean, maybe he said that later, but, but I remember he, he also said Abba, which isn't a Greek word at all. It's an Aramaic word. It's a word that Jesus like said that when he writes it down, he just uses Greek letters to write down A, B, B, Abba, because that's, that's what he said. That word isn't like this formality kind of like pater, father, off somewhere. Abba means dad, means close, means intimate. Dad, take away this cup. You know, now we walk around with like Jesus is my homeboy kind of shirt. So I don't think we really like get the the distance that was expected between God and people. Back then, especially for a rabbi, when you prayed, you did not pray like, like you expected there to be an intimate, close relationship between you and God. No, he was holy, we are not. We expect some, some distance between. So for Jesus to like, leverage this relationship and say, I'm not just anybody, dad, listen to me. And the other one, he says, take this cup, it's an imperative. It's a command. Take it away from me. Which I, I find interesting because later on in, in history when they, when they sort of kept translating this or especially mistranslating this uh, in the Middle Ages or so, we can see that people got entirely uncomfortable with the idea of there being like this, this Jesus who, 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 who demands something of the Father to say, say, 
take this imperative. Take this cup from me. They, they didn't like it because what was behind there was like, was like this tension, right, between the son and the father and, and how the son had, had like this vehement kind of resistance to the father's will. But we live in that tension. We get that. Because when we offer up a marriage or a kid who's run away or whatever it might be, we live in that tension of saying, God, I don't care what, you, what your will is. Help me help you. Answer this one specific laser-focused outcome-based prayer for me, would you? Jesus opened that tension and we live in it. But God said no. Remember? God heard Jesus' prayer. He just looks at it and says, no. It's not my will. And for all of Jesus' language, his, his, the words that he chooses to leverage whatever he has to get God to say yes, in the end, there's no outcome, right? Ex- except this. We have to notice this, this odd kind of, of shift. I wouldn't say in Jesus, but maybe the odd kind of shift in Jesus' approach. I mean, he goes from, from sweating blood, for crying out loud, to coming back a third time, seeing his disciples again, Sleeping and him saying uh, the third time now, enough. Rise! Exclamation point. Let's go! Exclamation point. Here comes my betrayer! Exclamation point. It's like what happened with Jesus' approach that all of a sudden his posture changes and and now while he's still like forehead, you know, red, blood stained, he's like got this confidence to him. He's got this approach. He's bravehearting this situation is what he's doing. Let's go. Rise. Here he comes. And by the way, right after this, all of the disciples are scared. They run for the hills, right? Um, Peter kind of like tries to lay low in plain sight. Don't you know Jesus? I don't know Jesus. John, somebody grabs onto his shirt. That's fine. I'm leaving that behind. He goes off naked, which is a whole other thing, but whatever. (laughs) Jesus is the only one now. Everybody else was calm, and Jesus was the one, agony, uh, just anxiety-ridden, and now everybody else is terrified, running for the hills, and now Jesus is the one who like, moves from vehement resistance to confident acceptance. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Isn't that an outcome? Maybe that's the outcome. So often, I think, when we pray for these laser-focused, specific kind of outcomes, one of the worst things that happens, I think, maybe, is that they come true. The parking space opens up. God, thank you. We start to think 
that our conversation with God, our, our relationship with God, our even intimacy with God somehow is about the parking space or somehow is about maybe a relationship that's failing, that turns better. If we could raise the stakes even more, some, that it's about a health crisis that does a U-turn and starts to recover. Isn't it possible that if we could step into God's eternal perspective just for a moment, that when it comes to eternity, when it comes to infinity, God cares less about the health crises, the relationship failures, and the parking spots than he does for the things that last for an eternity, than he does for the things, for the ones who will last an infinity. If it's true that God is going is to grant us our ultimate desire, that in the end, in the judgment, when the hour comes, and we've got an opportunity to choose God or choose away from him, that the gentleman God will step back and say, okay. If that's true, then the most important thing when we pray has nothing to do with the circumstances around us, but the very most critical, the most important thing when we pray is the prayer, is ourselves. And what God cares, I would say, most about the outcome has nothing to do with health crises or parking space. All of those things are a means. We mistake and we think they're the end. But all of those things are a means to the end of God forming us, God filling us, God making us like him, God preparing us. So when that hour comes, we'll look back at him and say, God, I, I consistently have and I will consistently choose an eternity with you. The temptation, by the way, the temptation of the disciples when Jesus comes back and he goes, don't, don't be tempted as you're sleeping. The temptation, I think, is to take the easy way out. Don't be tempted in your prayers this week. Don't, don't be tempted to mistake a parking spot for God's formative action in your heart. Don't be tempted to, to hang your hat on the outcome of circumstances when what God cares about most Saving your soul and mine and anybody that you might meet this week. Don't be tempted to take the easy way out. Hang on to God's saving action. I invite you to stand up and let's pray together. God, an eternal plan takes an eternal God. And Lord, we want to take just a, a minute right now and, and to just, Lord, reflect on how you have put a plan into motion before all of us were even around. And, and God, we, Lord, we acknowledge and we ask for your courage to celebrate the fact that it's not up to us. The fact that you're the one that we pray to. That these decisions are in your hands. 
And you can look beyond a health crisis. Lord, you can look beyond a parking spot. And you know what matters most. God, give us the the courage to celebrate that and the wisdom to see it this week. In your name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.